Uh, my name is Brandon, one of the pastors here, and I'm not sure if you guys are all aware. If you haven't been here that long, I probably guarantee you're not aware, but this is the 10-year anniversary. This summer marks 10 years since we had probably the most famous uh, sermon series that we've ever done. I can say that because I didn't preach a single one of those messages. We did a sermon series called God of the City. And so, anyone remember this? Got a few people who were here for 10 plus years, the other service, maybe a few more. Um, that sermon series really changed Crossroads forever. It really changed the fabric of what we do here. It um, launched much heavily, uh, much more heavily into that 90-10 that we talk about, that 90% of what we do is not here in this building. 90% of what we do is outside of here. That Crossroads doesn't exist for itself. This is just the 10% us gathering, but we are a kingdom of priests sent out into this city. And so what we did during this sermon series was we actually um, had it build all the way until this radical moment, like the culmination, the, the most important part where we actually canceled service for two weeks straight. We had no church. And really, I guess that's probably not correct. We had much more church because we challenged each and every person here to go out into their city to gather up as a house church and to invite people in, to go do acts of service around Grand Rapids in West Michigan, to go on prayer walks, to do whatever creative method God lays on your heart to go out and be the church to Grand Rapids. And so this summer is the 10-year mark, and we are going to do something really similar. We're gonna cancel church on July 7th. Oh, gasp. There will be no church here. If you show up to this building, it will be empty, but there's actually gonna be hundreds of expressions going on all over West Michigan, and I wanna challenge each and every person in here to start thinking, start dreaming about what it is that God might be calling you to do on that given Sunday. I was just talking to somebody before the first service, and they were sharing how they invited some neighbors over yesterday, and these neighbors don't know Christ. These neighbors actually are lonely, and they're longing for community. And so just that simple act of inviting them over, they actually now have this springboard to help them get plugged into a church, and they're excited about it. What's God leading us to? What's God leading you guys to? And so I want you to start dreaming about it. Last time we had a time of sharing, it was incredible of all the creative things that God did. If you guys wanna know more, if you guys are saying, hey, I, I wanna know more what this looks like, I can't even start to conceptualize what I could do on that given week. There's a sermon series back there. We have CDs. If, they're, if they run out, reach out to the church. We're happy to get you more, or I think they can be downloaded off the website, but the God of this City series. Okay, so July 7th, no gathering, right? You guys hearing me, shaking your heads? Yeah, okay. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Will. Best band in town. It's here for the band. I told them, they told me if I, if I keep giving them applause, they'll keep praying for me before. It's a good trade. I'm just kidding. They never said that. Somebody said the 11 o'clock doesn't laugh at anything. It's all right. I was thinking during the, the songs that the volume, I don't know what that means, the volume of your voices, it was much louder than the uh, previous service, in my opinion. And uh, so I think that maybe it, there's just more passion here. So maybe that's why it's so intense, you know. Don't laugh at anything. Just be serious. I've got lots of stories about that. Okay, I'll save them. 
Be serious. No, I didn't mean to do that. All right, so uh, hi, my name is Dan Mike. I'd like to share some thoughts and challenges um, with you about uh, the, the, one of the Beatitudes that's next on the list. Before I do, I'd just like to uh, just um, say publicly thank you to Hanny Emmanuel for coming last week. If you're listening to this, Hanny, we love you. And, uh, well, okay, hang on. Say, say thank you loud enough the microphone can hear him if he's listening to this. If you appreciate it, Hanny. Yeah. <laughs> Technology. You know, it's just, it's just wild that we can have somebody come all the way from Northern, or all the way from Africa uh, who's doing ministry in, in a dark place in the world to come and share some stories of light with us. The things that he said, some of those stories last week of, of the kingdom of God uh, moving in some of the most tumultuous times and places in the world, it was just so encouraging. It's just stuff you're not gonna hear on the news. Um, and, and so I really appreciate that we have boots on the ground and, and somebody that can actually come and bring a uh, report back here of what the Lord's doing there and be honest. And, um, and his call for us all to consider meekness and humility, uh, it was just amazing. And so, hey, you know what I was thinking about? If you, it would be really encouraging if I were him, if I got an email or something from some people over here. And so if you haven't sent him an email or a note to say something encouraging or that you're praying for him, um, I texted him and asked him for his email address. It turns out it's really easy. His email is H, like Hanny, H-N-E-S at me.com. <laughs> I didn't know you could have just a random letters email. And, and Anyway, so H-N-E-S at, at me.com. And, and just send him, if it's on your heart right now, to just send a, an email of encouragement. Um, it, it's a two-way street, you know, and so... Thank you, Hanny, for that. Um, so as I'm starting to think about what to say with the Sermon on the Mount, you know, it's so intimidating. It's so, it's so important to me. And uh, I was thinking this week, this is, okay, we call it the Sermon on the Mount. There's no Bible verse, though, that says this is a sermon. That's just what we call it. I don't know who started it. It's the, the speech between Matthew 5 and 7, um, and it's, it's really cool. It's the longest unbroken speech of, of Jesus that we have in the Gospels. But I don't know if I would call it a sermon, per se. When I think of sermon, I think of, you know, a church getting together and uh, gathering around the Gospel and someone, you know, speaking to everybody, something encouraging uh, to center our lives around Christ and all that, you know, and... and uh, this is not that, but it's also, it's, well, I don't know how, I think that this is a little bit more closer to something like um, propaganda, maybe, um, something, when you start to see what he's doing, he's being very uh, overt when he's talking about a new type of kingdom while he is existing inside of an existing kingdom, and he's speaking about this in a way where he's inviting people into it, uh, inviting, inviting people to turn from their ways and to, to see that the kingdom of God is near, it's at hand, it's within them. It's like a king speaking about a kingdom. And they saw him like, they heard him saying this, <laughs> they said, this, they, they took it to be like a, a zealot leader who's rallying up people saying, okay, this kingdom is, it's gonna happen soon. They, they wanted him to be that. They didn't realize that the means and the, and the span and, every, and what he was trying to do was much deeper and trying to go much farther than what they had ever imagined. They didn't realize that he was not going to do this by violence and force. But nonetheless, they saw him as this type of person, and they didn't know what to do with him. They saw him as somebody that they couldn't deny, but they also couldn't stand, clearly. As he continued to talk and, and preach, he painted a picture of a society and a world that was just undeniably better and beautiful and in harmony and uh, respectful to one another and with love for God and for the poor and for everybody. I mean, it was amazing. While at the same time, he would not tolerate at all people who had no issues, who thought that they had no issues. 
And he would push their buttons and he would pester them and push the, uh, what, what is socially acceptable. He pushed the norm farther and he would be showing them by his example um, what he actually means by how to live a life in the kingdom that he's presenting. And, uh, and so all these things are happening. It reminds me of this quote that he said in, in John 18 when he says, my kingdom is not of this world. said this two weeks ago, I'm going to say it again. What does your Jesus say? What is his kingdom like? Oftentimes, I think that we, like the people who are around Jesus, settle for a kingdom that is like this world. We, our world is constantly trying to poke, for, uh, you know, to pick fights with us about who's the good Christian and what we should be doing and who's the bad Christian and Jesus this and, and we're all uh, hypocrites that and we start to, it seems like fight in a way that's like of this world. What if this message that he is delivering is the marching orders uh, for his people? What if this message is just the, the thing, that he, the, the lifestyle that he wants us to live, the lifestyle that he showed us with his life? What if I told you that this is just something for you to memorize, internalize, know by heart, make as a one-to-one -one comparison to the, the decisions that you're making in your life? I think that that would be just a really great place to start when we talk about living out the kingdom in our life. Where do we start? I think we should start in the place that he started. The first word that came out of his mouth is the word blessed. If somebody described you as an ambassador of the kingdom of God in a word, what would the word be? If they had to observe your life or they just had to just sort of reflect on who you are to them and how you treat them and, and just the pattern, if they followed you around, would the word be blessing? I know that there are so many people at this church where the answer, if it were me, would be yes. I can't tell you how many times where I think that God, when I just feel like God is coming out of someone at this church and trying to say something to me, that's the word that comes to mind, is a blessing. And I just think as a standard for us to start uh, putting goals you know, in our minds for who we are and what this uh, sermon is calling us to be, are you a blessing? And is the kingdom of God a kingdom of blessing? And his crossroads seen in this world and in this city and, and described as such a blessing. Listen to the king of the kingdom speak of, of this blessing. And uh, so uh, just as we move forwards, uh, we kind of enter into a different section of the Beatitudes today. Let me explain. Um, there is what some scholars have identified somewhat of an intentionality in the crafting of the Beatitudes. I like to call it a blessing burger because you have two sides of the bun and then a very important meat and cheese section in the middle. The way that looks is it's three lines, two lines, and three lines. So three lines is the top of the bun, middle section and you know you get the picture okay so that as you know the most important part of a burger is the middle so we're entering into that middle section as we do that let me just um, preface and paraphrase the first three lines that we've been uh, thinking and praying through the past three weeks blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven and let me paraphrase some of these it's like Jesus is saying I'm gonna give my kingdom to the people of this world who are honest with themselves about their failure. My kingdom is for the people who are honest with themselves about their failure and honest about their brokenness. Blessed are those who mourn. Okay, so, and then and that sharp pain, the emotions that kind of come with that is gonna be grief and mourning. We start to see the sin in this world and the ramifications of, what we, uh, of, of our brokenness. There will be a pain and a mourning, but not a mourning like someone a part of the empire of this world. This kingdom has comfort for those who mourn. 
Namely, the comfort is the king, his companionship, and his solidarity, as he is one who's well acquainted with suffering and mourning himself. Naturally, the flow of that person who knows their sin and failure, who is grieving of that, is landing in a place of humility, of quiet, of meekness. And that person of humility belongs here and belongs here so much. They're like a member of this family because a member of a family is entitled to an inheritance. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit everything. And what a great promise for somebody who is uh, ending up in a humble, meek place in life because that person is so tired and not interested in working for a reward, but actually seeking uh, to just belong. And to be promised an inheritance implies family. It implies you belong. It implies you don't have to work. You're just here to receive your inheritance. This is the way he's talking about his kingdom. I've been asked to think through the next line, which is, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This is kind of an enigmatic line for me uh, because I started to think, and think on, on the one hand, it's very vivid and clear. Hunger and thirst, I mean, that's not a confusing statement. I mean, you don't have to teach that, right? Babies know how to hunger, like, are, are hungry and thirsty. There's no like, I mean, that, we all know. But what's unfortunate for me is the opaque part of this sentence is the word righteousness. And I wanna dig into that. I really wanna wrestle through and figure out what is righteousness? How do we feel through you know, righteousness? It's such a big word. It's like love and faith, these words that are trying to reduce such big and complicated themes into one word. What is righteousness? I want to get there. You know, a lot of the stuff that I've read this week about this kind of skips what even is righteousness, and it seems like they would rather this verse say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for God, um, for they shall be satisfied, which I'm not saying it doesn't get there. Well, do you know what righteousness is? Well, let's start with hunger and thirst. Will asked me this, when was the last time you... Uh, were hungry. And I think he was trying to sort of be facetious and, and get at the point that I live in a culture where food is just all over the place if you know where to look. So, uh, you know, when's the last time you really were hungry? But it's actually kind of an easier answer because every Tuesday at 11.35, I've had several meetings and I just start getting very agitated and irritable. I always try and see if I can get Will and Max to eat lunch with me, and they're always trying to wrap up what they're doing. I promise you. Sometimes I just go outside and lay on the ground. And I just am like, I can't do anything. I'm too hungry. I'm starving. I don't know if I just need to get more in for breakfast on Tuesday or what, but it's a repeating pattern. Hangry. You know what I'm talking about. The day you pull into Chick-fil-A on a Sunday and you forgot, and you're like... No! <laughs> now what? Your brain is like, I can't get anything else, and I can't get in there, and I don't know, where's the other, there's no other thing like this, and then you settle for something terrible, and you regret it, and it's a bad, I mean, it's just, <laughs> the hunger thing, you know, I, I, when I first started to uh, really, I'm just, when I first started to preach, I went to this mission downtown on Division that were, would allow me once a month or once a week to come in and speak. But the way that they had it set up was you, <laughs> you could not eat the food until you listened to a 30, 40 minute message from me. <laughs> I, I don't know, it seemed like a good idea, I guess, but the more I'm looking at these guys, they're like licking their lips like I'm turning into a chicken wing or something <laughs> up here and like, and like, uh, you know, you'd be surprised how many uh, people will accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior if it just means me to stop talking. It's like actually a really good evangelistic tool. Um, 
hunger, you know, it's such an intense desire and a feeling that we will follow that feeling. What you're hungry for, what you're thirsty for will guide and dictate your path or where you're going to go. So a better question for us to think about right now is, is what are you hungry for? Takes me back into, you know, as I started to think about uh, this desire, it's not wrong to be hungry. It's, it's okay, it's pure, it's part of how we are designed. I think that we are created with a lack. We are created as not autonomous functioning machines, but it's things that, that need to, to, to fuel, things that need to take in in order to continue to live. Like Jesus said, something has to die in order for a seed to go in the ground and produce life. For everything that brings us life has to die. In uh, the very beginning of the Bible, there's a story of the source of all of creation. It's a really beautiful thing in Genesis chapter one and two. And you see the... Uh, you see the creation of man, and he's described as uh, not good. <laughs> is not good, what? That he was alone. Now, often in my life, I thought that this just meant that this was like, because he wasn't married yet, and so he needs to get married, but then as you just sort of objectively look at this, that solution didn't really help his life. It seemed to make things progressively worse as it continued. He's now, he's, he's out of the garden. It's like, you know, what's going on? And you think about it, man and woman were made in the image and the likeness of God. And what John 1, 1 reminds us is that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. That God is a, tr is a trinity, he's a community. He has the Father, the Son, the Spirit together, and they made man in our likeness, and then he's alone. Not because he doesn't have somebody with him or animals or whatever with him. He's alone because he's not with God. This becomes the underpinning theme of the Bible of how does man get there, get back there, get with God. In the very end of the Bible, you see this chapter in Revelation 21 where it says, behold, finally, the dwelling place of God is going to be with man. There is a need, a hole, uh, uh, something that needs to be filled, and not, not by each other, but by God. You've seen this. If that hole, if, if you try and get that hole in your heart filled by a person, the pressure and the weight that gets placed on that person will crush them. It will crush the relationship. It will never satisfy and this is the game that we start to play. What will satisfy my hunger? Part of coming together as a church and, and discerning and praying about this stuff is, is to ask ourselves, are you hungry and thirsty for the right things? Because once we start to get our satisfaction or seek satisfaction and fulfillment of our hunger in things that are not God and are not the things of God, we call this idolatry. I'm not the idol police here, okay? I have a pantheon of my own that I'm dealing with, uh, trying to, like Abraham, just you know, renounce all of that and move in the right direction, and I'm not trying to, to sound like that's not true. But when this topic comes up, I really think it's just, I just respect you and love you enough to put it before you and, and ask you to discern. Do I have idols in my life? Do I have in a hunger and thirst and affection for something that I shouldn't? Sometimes I think it would be really nice if we lived in a place where there actually were temples and idols and we could just figure that out. Like, you know, some places of this world or in history, you know, there'd be, you, know you could walk by, hey, there's the temple of, you know, Artemis or whatever. You're like, you could just see it happen, but we don't. We live in America. In the United States, our idolatry... Um, is either so overt that it's covert, like, okay, no, I'm not gonna say that. Okay, it's either, it, or, or it's just incognito. It, it's just stuff that's beneath the surface that we're all sort of accepting and going after. And what if I told you, just started to just think out loud about some possible idols or false gods and just name them kind of allegorically what they are. If I told you there was an idol that you could, that's beckoning your name, and his name is Control. Control. 
Control desires your worship, your tithe, for you to tribute to him time and money, for you to listen to his guidance and his leadership. And the more that you do, the more the promise will be that in the end you will be safe. In the end, your future, your future will be sure. If you would just follow his plan of safety and security, or if you would get your kids to do what, what control wants you to do so that someday they will be okay and happy somewhere and safe and, uh, and, and their future will be sure and secure. The demand for tribute and uh, for tithe is, is so high. It's, it's all of your time. It's all of your resources. It's, and it's a path of following so much fear. And in the end, even though the promise is there for control, for security, and for safety, actually, the more you worship this God, the less security and safety you actually feel deep down. This is an option of worship in our culture. What about power? I mean, we celebrate power. We celebrate stories on TV of people who are, are, are just obsessed and inundated with power. We wanna have power. Power is, is great because he will tell you that he'll give you permission to judge for yourself what is right or wrong. If you would just continue to trust and follow this God, you will then be able to decide for yourself how to, how to use your abilities and talents or your sexuality, your body, or whatever you decide. It's up to you. You have the power. You're able to, to make that choice for yourself. The tithe and the demand you know, for uh, tribute, though, is, is a real strenuous treatment of your body. It's a strenuous exhaustion. Um, and actually, the more you continue to follow this uh, path and pursuit of power, the more you're willing to compromise on things that at one point in your life seem so obvious. Relinquishing, really, any power that you ever really had. One of the fastest growing religions in idolatry of our day, I think, is the idol and the God of comfort. There are many priests and priestesses that are out there evangelizing people to um, serve and worship this God. Maybe through uh, social media or through Instagram and through all kinds of um, pervasive pictures and things saying, just come and be like me, sell everything that you have and have a life of comfort and leisure. Spend all your effort and energy to save up and get to a place where all of that has been allocated for you to have comfort and leisure someday, hopefully soon. The permission given to you by this God is one that says that you are never going to be responsible for anybody else except for yourself. And it's enticing. And it's such a high cost because you just start to see people just abandoning their families, abandoning their children at all different ages, just seeking to fulfill that hunger for comfort, for rest, for leisure. You might say, Dan, Mike, I don't, I'm not an idolater, okay? I'm a Christian, I'm here at Crossroads. Calm down, right? And I'm just putting it on the table. I'm not pointing fingers at anybody. I have nobody in my mind. I just want to ask you, okay, you might say, I believe in God. God is my God. Uh, but what would your life say to me if there was a way to look at your life and say, what, is, what, is it, what does this person worship? What is the tribute and the tithe and the, uh, the energy sacrificed you know, to this God? What happens, you know, that the real deep end of the pool here is uh, if we turn our Christian faith into an idol. You ever think about the idolatry of God himself? You know, this gets kind of uh, dense when you start to take those three things, control, comfort, and power, and start to add to them the greatest need of approval that we could ever think of, and then start to uh, uh, actually 
put the pressure of performance for that approval and for all of those other things with the stakes that are so high, eternity is in the balance. It's a deadly elixir that so many of us drink that leaves us feeling like we're inside of this, you know, fun house at the fair full of mirrors where it's just, you, you never know where you're at or what you actually look like. Every time you turn around, things are different. It's such a polar, uh, you know, existence to make God into an idol. Check your prayer life because what, what it would look like is the way it would look like with any form of idolatry. Idolatry will be a transactional relationship and any idolatrous transactional relationship will never have a pattern of health following it. What do I mean by transactions? I mean, your prayers will sound like this. If I do this for you, you'll do this for me, right? It gets heavier than that very quickly. I did this for you, God, and you didn't do this for me. You didn't pay me back for that. There's an unbalanced transaction being made here. And then very shortly after that, it turns into, how dare you? Living in this uh, idolatrous relationship with God, I think oftentimes puts you on a spectrum, not even in the middle, but I mean, uh, two polar opposites. One, it seems like it turns into this prophets of Baal type of lifestyle where the more radical and committed that one gets, they ensure that that would ensure that God would respond uh, with favor over that person. Looks like uh, continuing to, to hold your breath until you turn blue so that God will do what you want to do and continue to fast, continue to do all of these acts of sacrifice for God in order to get God to respond to you. On the other end of the spectrum, though, I often see as well someone who goes through this transactional relationship with God and then says, you know what, I'm out. I gave you all of this. I gave you everything I had, you give me nothing. So, I'm out. Oftentimes, I'll talk with this person and say, describe to me this God, you know, that you no longer believe in. And actually, I don't believe in that God either. And then we become atheists together, I guess. Um, if, it, if, it's, if, if that's true. I mean, it's, it's like, it's not a game to turn God into an idol. Idolatry in general is not a game. Any idol that I could bring up is, is still true. They hate you. It's the evil one hijacking your hunger and your thirst for God and diverting it into something else and telling you that you will be happy. You will be like God if, if you would just eat the fruit. You know, that serpent was so crafty. Because like I said, Adam and Eve, they were made with the likeness of God and that, that lack for that was in them and he exploited that. What did he say? You'll be like God, knowing good and evil, if you eat that. This, this is how he exploits our hunger and so ask yourself, has my hunger you know, been diverted into something unhealthy and idolatrous? Am I being transactional with God? This will lead to devastation, and it's by design. You think that the serpent was confused? <laughs> he knew what was gonna happen. The serpent wants you, wants you to be devastated, wants to destroy your family, wants to destroy your life. And the more we kind of give in to that, the more you'll see a wake of destruction behind you. For no sin that you ever commit is going to be isolated and only affect you. It's going to affect everyone that's around you. Our hunger and thirst um, are really confusing sometimes. So if I was to give you one thing really to think about, about how to get to the heart of if I have an idol in my life, it's to evaluate whether or not you are the centerpiece of your existence. In the heart of every man is a throne. If you're sitting on that throne, 
and you're the king of your life, that every single hunger and demand that you deem uh, you know, relevant and necessary, you're gonna go after that. Am I the center of my universe? At the, at the heart of all this idolatry is a, um, a passion for self-centered for, uh, fulfillment, for selfishness. Problem is, once we actually identify this, how do you get to a place of not being selfish? Can you? Ask us, okay, there was a time in my life where I was really trying to I was, uh, eat up the book of Philippians, and I remember this verse that just devastated me. It's right in chapter two, and it says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. And I read that, and I just started thinking, good grief, is there anything that I do out of not selfish ambition, whatever that would be? I mean, is there anything? I had a crisis if you will. I mean, some of my friends back then remember me just being like, I don't know how to function if, if I you know, can't get out of this selfishness, right? This, this self-preservation, uh, this pattern. Well, this is a great time to transition into talking about what righteousness is. So let me just get deep into this because when I started searching um, righteousness, it turns out is over 200 times referenced in the Bible. This is a very big topic and I, I oftentimes get lost in it a little bit um, because you know what, I try so hard. I wanna be a good like conductor and see 213 different sounds made and make it into a harmonious song or something but oftentimes it just sounds a little more like grunge music, you know. Um, sometimes it's magic, sometimes it's tragic. <laughs> Righteousness. As I said before, one of the big words of the Bible, and unfortunately, in my life, it's something that has often been just sort of thrown around and not... Um, and kind of carelessly used and assumed that, that, that we all know what this means. And so, uh, and like a word that has been around for thousands of years, it has a little bit of a story and an evolution and different things. Like, like it has, this is what can be confusing, deep, rich Hebrew roots. But then at times, the fruit of that tree is like a Greek-looking apple. I mean, it's a Greek fruit. And so how do you, which is it? Is it both? And how do you harmonize this? <coughs> Righteousness. I'll, I'll, I'll begin by talking about it in sort of an analogy. I can't start talking about righteousness without referencing um, his twin brother. So imagine two twins. They look identically the same, but obviously they're not the same because there's two. And they are, you, you know, they're really great guys. You love them. Um, but one of them, his name is righteousness, and the other's his name is Justice. Justice and righteousness do everything together, and most of the time in the Hebrew scriptures, you actually can't mention one without mentioning the other. I mean, how many times have you heard a verse that says God rules in righteousness and justice, and righteousness and justice, I mean, it's almost one person, one thing. Now, imagine that these twins grow up, and they decide to start a nonprofit organization to help the poor, the widow and the orphan of their city and their age. Justice. He's so active, and he actually discerns what, um, what are the needs in his community? Who are the people who are disenfranchised, and how does he actually meet their needs with restitution? He gets all the attention. And, you know, when the news comes and interviews him, and the guys from YouTube come down to, uh, you know, tape him, and they'll say, you know, we are just so proud of you, Justice. You do so much, like, quantifiably. It's just so beautiful. And he says every time, if it's biblical justice, he says every time, it's just because of my brother, righteousness. I would never be doing any of this if it weren't for him championing me, encouraging me, telling me, showing me his heart and where to go. This is how justice and righteousness works. And uh, l let me read to you one example um, from the book of Job, one of the oldest uh, Hebrew stories that we have. Listen to this. Job's describing himself. 
Um, whoever heard of me spoke well of me, and those who saw me commended me, because I rescued the poor who cried for help, the fatherless who had none to assist them. The man who was dying blessed me. I made the widow's heart sing for joy. I put on righteousness as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. I was the eyes to the, blame, the blind, feet to the lame, and I was the father to the needy and took up the case of the outsider. Did you catch what he said when he said, I put righteousness on as my clothing, but justice as my robe and my turban? How in intricate and related they are. Notice also the tenor of what he's describing is one that is, is like a, a social justice, mercy ministry uh, type of description that leads for him to say, out of righteousness and justice, uh, I, I was in relationship with all of these people. Righteousness and justice is, is at the beginning a earthen relationship. It's something that's relational where you're righting wrongs and you're uh, doing right by somebody who is oppressed. But the big question of why isn't that just justice, why don't we just call that justice, is the motive. Like I said, the twin brother says, righteousness is the reason why I do all this stuff. Now, this became a conundrum for the sages of old and the rabbis of the days of Christ to try and figure out, how do you track down the motivation? Like I said, how do you do something not out of selfish ambition? How do you know? How do you know? Maimonides once said that the perfect gift is one where someone who gives but doesn't know they're giving and one who receives a gift but doesn't know they're receiving it. And... Uh, because he's trying to, to figure out how to track down the true righteous motivation. Oftentimes, this conversation led into uh, examples, like one of which where the rabbis would say, uh, one of the greatest acts of righteousness is to serve at a funeral. Why? Because the person who died will never be able to pay you back. And if you can't get paid back, you know that you did it fully for them, at least it's close. <laughs> You're really trying to, to track down, am I, am I, dis, am, am I um, disadvantaging myself to really bring an advantage to someone else and it be pure? So charitable giving became a big part of this conversation, as you can see even in chapter six, verse one, where Jesus says, um, be careful not to let your act of righteousness be done so that others can see. But when you give to the poor, do so in private. And uh, Rod mentioned this parable several times that I, I'll never forget where there's a rabbi who misrepresents God. And then what happens? God says, you know what? Because of that, I will not let you enter in the age to come. Does anybody remember what happens? In this particular parable, the rabbi begins to celebrate, and a smile comes across his face, and he says, finally, I now know for the rest of my life I will be able to serve God and know that nothing will come my way in return for that, act, that sacrifice. And this story is trying to illustrate the tension that they're struggling with of what is a righteous motivation. And I think as we continue to see this word develop and evolve into something uh, practical, but also interior and personal. We see Jesus uh, fighting for this all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Remember what he says in, in chapter five, verse 20. Unless your what? Righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And what he starts to kind of contrast from then on is a option one, and option two. I would say the righteousness of the Pharisee and the righteousness of a disciple of Christ. So then he goes on to say, you've heard it was said, but now I say. You could live your life like the Pharisee and what says, I, I, you've heard it was said, you shall not commit murder. I didn't commit murder. 
I hate my brother, but I didn't kill him. And then Jesus says, but the one who is, is truly seeking righteousness is the one who uh, goes to his brother and says, let's be reconciled, leaving his gift at the altar, trying to make it right with him, disadvantaging himself, trying to make, uh, <coughs> restore their relationship. I could boil it down into this pithy paradigm of there, the Pharisee does things right. The righteous do the right thing. This doing the right thing requires discernment. It requires prayer. It requires uh, challenging yourself to go above and beyond. Like Jesus continues to say, yeah, you can do things right. You've heard it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, sure. But you wanna know what the right thing is? Turn the other cheek when you are slapped. When someone demands your robe, give them everything, your tunic as well. Walk the extra mile. Pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemy. Greet the person that you wouldn't have greeted. Give rain and sun like God gives to everybody, people who deserve it and people who don't. When you give, give so in private, not so that you're able to be seen. When you fast, don't make yourself look like you're fasting, but fast in private uh, so that you're not receiving some compliment in return. When you pray, don't stand there and pray so that people can hear how good of a prayer person you are. You know, that, do the right thing and pray in private and there your heavenly father will uh, see. Don't manipulate God with your many words and trying to pray so that he'll, you know, listen to you. Be like the birds and be like the flowers and be like the, 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 the one who just is, has the right motivation in their gift. And remember what he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Don't settle for doing things right and just being correct. And I mean, that is the old transactional paradigm where you say, I did it right. You can't say anything to me, I did, the, I did it. Jesus is inviting us into a much more messy existence of trying to figure out how to do the right thing. And it will be painful and challenging, but you will know that this is true righteousness. Now, you might ask me, are we able to be righteous? Well, I'd ask the Apostle Paul to clarify for us because he writes extensively on this exact thing. If you read, um, if you read Romans, for example, he's trying to, to, to develop this theme even more because uh, like Isaiah said, at the end of the day, all of our acts of righteousness, as much as we can try to not to avoid doing things right and do the right thing, at the end of the day are like filthy rags before the Lord. And then Paul says this really important sentence in Romans chapter one. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to save those who believe, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. And it was verse 17. For this gospel reveals, we would say love, the love of God, right? <laughs> what does Paul say? The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. There's only one being in the history of the cosmos who is able to have as place of true self-sacrifice that is pure and undefiled and has no idolatry, ego, or hidden agenda attached to it. And the gospel is that he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but gave it all up and, and became one like a servant and gave his life on the cross, paying for our unrighteousness and putting upon us the righteousness of God. And with that, the ability to continue to, to live a life of righteousness. The ability to say, you like, you like me? Pick up your cross and follow me. And you can do that for the right reasons. And one practical uh, point on this would be that very thing right there that I'm talking about. 
Dan, how do I eat righteousness? How do I hunger and thirst for this? Essentially, what Jesus is saying is you're hungering and thirsting for the heart of God. And if you hunger and thirst for the heart of God, you will be satisfied. And one of the ways that I think you amp up your hunger, like how I was talking about Chick-fil-A earlier and like half of you were looking at your watch, but then you realize it's Sunday and you can't go there, is by inspiration. When's the last time you unplugged, you put it down, you started to actually fix your eyes on Christ? When's the last time we let go of our career path, our plans, our you know, TV series, or our entertainment for one hour and just said, I'm gonna fix my eyes on Christ and I'm gonna pray, God, give me your heart. Because once we start to see the truth of our champion, the truth of the person who gave everything for us, who prayed prayers from the heart of God, like not my will, but yours be done, and actually disadvantaged himself to bring advantage to all of us, you can't look at that and not be inspired. You can't look at that and say, I love this guy and I wanna be like him in my marriage, in my friendships, in my workplace, wherever I am, I want to live a life that portrays the righteousness of Christ. <coughs> so get you some inspiration, fix your eyes on Christ, and the more you see that, and you're called into this, uh, the more you're hungry to be like him, the promise is you will be satisfied. You will be able to be like him if you're continuing to hunger and thirst for him. So really, at the end of the day, uh, I'd like to pray about this line that some crazy rabbi thousand years ago said, if you seek to save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you're gonna find it. For those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will be satisfied, amen? Let's pray um, and evaluate ourselves. Heavenly Father, Father of righteousness, teach us about your heart, teach us about how to lay our lives down um, in a genuine way for this world. Our world just does not need hidden agendas right now. If there's any of us who are struggling with idols, give them the courage and the ability to take that to you and say, wash my hands. Give us a clean hands and a pure heart that, don't, that is not lifted up to idols. If there's any of us who are living a transactional relationship out with you, identify that, expose that, Show us that the idolatry of that transaction and help us to let it go and receive our place in your family. We don't have to work for it. Receive our place in, in your inheritance. If any of us have not been just fixing our eyes on our champion, for whatever reason, whatever we've been looking at, help us on a daily basis to look to you for our inspiration, to look to you for um, our gospel and inspire this church to continue to go out into this city and live a life that reflects you. Amen.